State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict, Count 2. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 2, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Count three, we the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three, second degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. There's a famous mantra that appeared in the Doonesbury cartoon during the heyday of Watergate. Guilty, guilty, guilty. So it was Tuesday afternoon when a Hennepin County jury rendered its verdict in the case of police officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd, a moment that, like Richard Nixon's downfall, will be engraved in the history books. Shown the horrific video of Chauvin with his knee on the neck of Floyd for 9 minutes and 29 seconds, unmoved and uncaring as his suspect pleaded that he couldn't breathe, and hearing the testimony from the Minneapolis police chief that there was no justification for Chauvin's conduct, the jury found him guilty on all three counts, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. It was a galvanizing moment reminding a polarized nation of the reality of police mistreatment of African Americans and of how much more work needs to be done before true justice is achieved. We'll talk to our Yahoo News colleague, Crystal Hill, who has been covering the Chauvin trial, And we'll speak to Nakia Gordon, a neuroscientist, about what the entire George Floyd experience has done to the psyche of a divided nation on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 God. I'm Michael Iskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I think that uh, there was uh, a a lot of us, uh, like much of the country, was uh, holding its breath this uh, uh, afternoon as we waited for the verdict. In the uh, in the Chauvin trial for reasons that are both good and maybe not quite as good. The good reason is we'd all seen the video, the shocking images of uh, of of Chauvin with his with his knee on Floyd's neck and heard some of the testimony. And it would seem clear that uh, he had done exactly what prosecutors uh, uh, claimed he had done. Um, the not so good reason is that we were all worried about what the impact would be if he was not found guilty. The fact is he was uh, and uh, uh, I think there was a sigh of relief that uh, was quite universal throughout the country. Um, Crystal Hill, our uh, Yahoo News colleague, has been covering the trial. Crystal, um, welcome to Skullduggery. And tell us your own reaction. Were you surprised that the jury gave a guilty verdict on all three counts? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I- I've got to say I was definitely surprised. Um, really? Very much so. Um, Not necessarily because I thought it would end in an acquittal, but it would have only taken one juror to uh, sort of have some doubts about 
what caused uh, George Floyd's death. And the defense spent, you know, three weeks trying to create doubt. And so I wasn't sure if there would be a conviction on all counts. I thought maybe manslaughter, but hearing uh, the guilty verdict on second degree murder, third degree murder, I I was truly stunned. I mean, I'm I'm a little surprised to hear you say that because... You know, just watching it from afar and not nearly as closely as you were, it seemed to me the prosecution had a very powerful case and the defense was not that strong, not as strong as I thought that it might be, um, particularly because they were contradicted on almost every front by not just the video, but the testimony, the medical testimony and that, you know, very powerful testimony from the police chief in Minneapolis. Absolutely. I mean, the state had a very strong case. It was a a four-person team. They obviously knew what they were doing. But, you know, police officers are often given the benefit of the doubt. You know, Nelson, even though he was sort of, uh, it was sort of a David and Goliath situation with, you know, this powerhouse prosecution team against this one uh, defense attorney, he uh, was a formidable opponent, I think. I mean, he really stuck to this idea that when you're a police officer, you find yourself in situations that are unpredictable, that you act the best way that you can. Um, obviously, that argument didn't, you know, really land with the jury. But, you know, we've seen cases before where, you know, police officers have been let off because people do tend to sympathize with police officers and how dangerous their job is. So I had that in mind as we were uh, waiting for the verdict to come. Well, I would say, Crystal, you know, Mike, I, I know why you were skeptical of what Crystal started out saying. And at, to some extent, I, I am, too. O- on the other hand, our last episode of Skullduggery uh, was uh, about the uh, prevalence of the QAnon conspiracy theory in this country and a poll Good that point. showed that, so- that something <laughs> yeah. like, you know, close to a quarter of the country in some form subscribes to the QAnon conspiracy theory. So the idea that one juror out of 12 uh, might not have found reason to to doubt the uh, the guilt of uh, Derek Chauvin um, is not is not surprising. Um, and you know what it makes me think is one of the most effective lines of the prosecution. Um, I think, um, particularly after they showed that video, was you know you can believe your eyes. And you know, I was thinking about that line today uh, because. You know, we we are living in this kind of post-truth, post-reality moment. It's not an obvious thing uh, that people will see a video like that and just believe it. And so, you know, I think it, at some level, this verdict, you know, you, Mike, you said that, you know, we were all waiting with bated breath here, you know, partly because the stakes were so high, not just for the Floyd family, not just for black Americans who've seen these kinds of injustices over and over again, but for the whole country who have been asking for a long time whether our institutions can actually work, whether accountability or justice can be uh, delivered. So the stakes were high. And uh, and that's really, you know, the good news out of all this, uh, an affirmation that the system can work and can deliver justice, right? Uh, um, but... But they're going to be appeals without a doubt. Right. And uh, and so, Crystal, tell us about the the appeals, what uh, legal observers think. Does Chauvin have a sound basis for an appeal? What's happening next? Yeah, I mean, that's the one aspect of everything that might give, you know, supporters of 
the guilty verdict and the supporters of, of Floyd some anxiety because uh, throughout the trial, um, defense attorney Eric Nelson um, has been raising issues uh, that are pretty important about whether or not Derek Chauvin received a fair trial. Nelson raised the overwhelming publicity of the case as an issue. He had tried to get uh, a change of venue uh, with Judge Peter Cahill, who presided over the case. He had denied. Nelson had raised the recent shooting in Brooklyn Center and how that shooting might have put more pressure on the jury to possibly reach a verdict that, you know, wouldn't, you know, send the city into more chaos. Um, and of course, he had raised uh, the recent comments from Representative Maxine Waters, where she had uh, that if there's no guilty verdict, that activists should get more confrontational. And those comments were met with some disapproval from Judge Cahill. Um, Didn't Judge Cahill say that those comments uh, could give uh, the defense a basis for overturning the verdict? Yes, um, which was pretty stunning. Um, so, you know, Nelson has pretty much been laying the groundwork for what experts I spoke to said could be a very strong appeal. So we're not completely, you know, out of the woods yet. The case is not completely over. You know, once uh, Chauvin is sentenced, there almost certainly will be an appeal and it could it could go the distance. Crystal, you made a reference to Chauvin's supporters, and I guess that really struck me. Did he have any supporters? Were there was there anybody out there saying the guy was being railroaded and being unfairly treated? Yeah, none that I, none who were outspoken at least. You know, when the incident first you know happened and we all learned of it, um, this was one of those I think rare cases where we heard from police all across the country, you know, denouncing what happened. And of course, during the trial, we saw the Minneapolis police chief, we saw multiple police officers with the Minneapolis apartment denouncing Chauvin and, and saying that what he did was not the proper conduct for a police officer. So other than his attorney, I'm not aware of any <laughs> support. I, I wanted to pick up on that uh, last point uh, that you made about um, about the police chief and I think it was the, the longest serving homicide uh, detective um, in the in the department, both testifying against Chauvin and pretty effectively, you know, normally the expectation is, is the cops kind of close ranks, circle the wagons and, and support their fellow police officers in this particular case. For the most part, that really didn't happen. And so it did raise the question, and I actually asked you to go out and report and do a story on this. Does this represent a significant uh, crack in the blue wall of silence? Will it uh, have an effect on you know future cases going forward? And tell us what you found in your reporting. Yeah, I mean, a lot of former officers I spoke to acknowledged that so many police officers testified against Chauvin. They said it was a great start, but they said that basically this, you know, so-called blue wall of silence is really just, it's so ingrained in police culture that I, I think an analyst has said that the blue wall is, you know, crumbling. And I sort of said, well, not quite because, you know, this is still an issue. This idea that you back your fellow officer, no matter what, is still being taught in police academies. It's still an idea that's very much uh, ingrained in police culture. Um, and one thing that Nelson did in response to those officers testifying is he really tried to create distance between them and people who are on the ground because these were high-ranking officials, uh, the chief, uh, the longest serving um, officer, Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, um, Sergeant Luger, 
who I believe is now retired. You know, these were high-ranking officials. And he basically, Nelson kind of tried to show that, okay, they're not on the ground. They're not patrol officers. They're not the ones getting into scuffles with people who are being arrested or with suspects. So they don't have that on-the-ground perspective. And the police officers who I spoke to for my story said that it would have been more powerful if those fellow patrol officers, if more of them would have been at the trial and would have said, uh, or even just spoken out publicly and said, you know, this is not right. This is not what police officers do. You know, we are um, so used to uh, bemoaning big tech and its uh, sinister influences at times. But let's be clear, had it not been for that cell phone video, it is likely that none of this would have played out in the way that it did. 15, 20 years ago, before uh, cell phone videos were as common as they are today, um, this would have happened without those images that sort of shocked the conscience of the country. And uh, is likely the police testimony would have been very different than what, um, what we saw and what was undeniable. And so one can look back at cases in, you know, over the, over the decades, Emmett Till, Fred Hampton, you know, had there been cell phone videos then, how public perceptions would have been very different than they were. So, you know, this is one where we should uh, congratulate Apple and the other, <laughs> uh, you know, other big tech firms that pioneered cell phone videos, because that's the only reason this happened the way it did. Yeah, I mean, the state's case relied heavily on videos taken from bystanders. We know that Darnella Frazier's video was the video that started it all. You know, I was looking at the original police statement of the incident, and, you know, the way it was described was in such stark contrast to what we saw. You know, the, they, the, as, the, the police described it as a, quote, medical incident. Mm-hmm. That what Derek Chauvin was actually doing was responding to George Floyd, who was uh, in need of medical help. That's the that's the first statement, right? Yeah, yeah, and it mentions how you know Floyd was resisting, and it, you don't at all get the impression that police officers you know harmed him in any way. That you know you, they certainly don't say a knee was placed on this man's neck, um, and so without the video. I think we probably would have relied more on that narrative at the trial. We would have had to rely a lot on bystander testimony on their words alone without really much uh, video besides, you know, surveillance video. And, you know, of course, there's body cameras. Um, so bystander video, uh, it, it was definitely uh, a, a witness at this trial. Now, Crystal, um, the there's b- beyond the appeals in this case, uh, there's more legal work for the prosecution going forward, right? Because there were other cops on the scene who did not participate in the way that obviously Derek Chauvin did, but um, but stood idly by, stood while, idly by while George Floyd was being murdered and did nothing to stop it. W- what's going to happen in those cases? Yeah, I mean, they are all um, set for trial, I believe, in uh, late summer, early fall. And um, legal experts I spoke to, you know, they said that, you know, had there been an acquittal, it would have been harder for the prosecution to bring a case against uh, the other three officers because they're charged with aiding and abetting murder. If there's no murder, what did they aid and abet, basically? Right. So now that there is a conviction, 
on all counts, I think it's safe to say that that would be uh, a good thing for the state and a difficult thing for the attorneys who are representing Officer Lane, King, and Powell. You watched the whole trial. Is there any one moment that really stands out in your mind? The testimony from the bystanders was just extremely powerful um, because you can see how much the incident still weighs on them even a year later. Um, Frazier, who really, you know, she can kind of credit herself with sort of helping blow this case open as far as, you know, showing the world this incident. She at one point said that she would stay up late at night apologizing to Floyd because she felt like she had failed him. And that was just such a powerful moment. You could really see that they all felt this collective guilt. And so seeing them um, feel that they didn't do enough and then now knowing that their testimony, you know, led to this conviction, um, that's something that definitely that stayed with me. Well, Crystal, I want to thank you uh, for your yeoman's work uh, covering the trial. And um, I assume you'll be covering the next trial with the other police officers. So we will definitely want to get your perspective then. But thanks for joining us. Thanks, Crystal. Great. Thank you so much for having me. We now have with us Nakia Gordon, who's an associate professor of psychology at Marquette University and has written about the uh, Derek Chauvin trial and the George Floyd experience and how people have perceived it and the scars it has left on the on the country. Um, so, uh, Dr. Gordon, welcome to Skullduggery. Wanted to just sort of start out by asking you, you know, this was such a fraught moment for everybody um, watching the verdict. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you watched it and perceived it and what, you, what was going through your mind. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. I have to be honest, before I was given the opportunity to maybe come talk to you fine folks, I had not planned to watch the any of it. I, you know, really? I was watching network TV one day and court TV was like, dun, dun, dun the Derek Chauvin trial. And I was like, really? <laughs> We're making this kind of spectacle? I'm really not watching it now, right? I'm really just sort of turned off. Um, but I have watched, you know, I watched snippets. I watched the closing arguments. You know, I watched um, as we waited for the verdict to come down. And, you know, as a affective neuroscientist, I'm always thinking about my emotions. You know, I was really paying attention to my body and like, how do I feel about this? And that I didn't feel the relief that people were reporting who were there on the ground. And I can imagine that that whole situation was just fraught with emotion. And so you would feel some relief. I felt uh, just like, okay, well, here's one. Yeah, <laughs> It's one thing. Well, you know, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking this, this is one trial. This is one verdict. And the arc of justice uh, is long. But how should people kind of assimilate this uh, into the larger context of, you know, so many cases that uh, where, where justice or accountability were not served? It's one thing to say, well, this is just one case, but can you build on it? How should people think about it? How should people process it going forward? You know, I think one way to think about it is, okay, this is one case after millions of people protesting in the street, after eight years of community organizing, after thousands of, you know, meetings and groups of people coming together. So I'd like to say 
after all of these things have been taking place, you know, not just over the past year, but in the years prior, perhaps that arc of justice is now on its way, right? But it's not just because of this case, right? It's because of all the legwork, all the footwork, all the people who've been really, you know, working hard behind these issues for so long. That would be my optimistic view of it. And it is interesting. I just, just the other point I wanted to make about it is, is that um, I had forgotten that all of the protests unleashed by George Floyd's death actually had a real impact on this case. Yeah. Uh, because the original prosecutors uh, in the case, who were kind of frankly bumbling around a bit, you know, until uh, Keith Ellison took charge uh, of the prosecution. And as we know, this prosecution team was pretty formidable. Yeah. So I think there's a direct line between people speaking out and yes. having their making sure that their voices were heard uh, and the ultimate outcome of this trial, which uh, I think is a is is worth remembering. And I think it creates the space for people to be brave, right? I think it creates the space to say there is an appetite for perhaps a different outcome, right? There is room for us to now fight more publicly, to be more vocal. And so, yes, I think it's all of that leading up to this that hopefully, you know, gets that justice. I heard someone on the news today say, you know, justice is a practice, which I really like. It's not one outcome, right? It's a practice. And so I like this idea of perhaps that is leading us into the practice of more <laughs> equitable justice. Still, there, there were some really hard parts about the trial. There was the the kind of the, the, the relentless replay of that awful video of George Floyd's death. That was kind of, that was pretty traumatic. There were, there was a, a kind of the fairly typical assault that we see on a victim's reputation and on the life of the victim. And I'm wondering how we ought to also kind of process that sub-narrative behind the trial. We we all hear, and a lot of people were relieved about the verdict, but it's hard to step away from what came and what was repeated before the verdict. Yeah. I mean, you know, seeing those images are damaging. Right. Um, so I have a line of research. We have a number of different studies where, you know, I'm really curious, like, what does it do for people to see these images, both, you know, these more contemporary police images. But we have studies where we looked at um, somewhat historical violence in the same vein. And what we find, thankfully, is that people feel angry. Right. They see these images and they feel angry. And we have in our more recent work, we've also asked because we've shown um, images of police violence against black men. They're angry at police. Right. Because it's one thing to just be angry. And then, of course, the psychologists are like, well, hmm, I don't really know who you're angry. like. I need more information. Like, who are you angry at? And so we asked specifically, you know, whether or not they were angry at police. And they were. And so there's, you know, something hopeful in that. Um and, you know, there, there are other things where it's not even so much how people think. So we, you know, we try to get at implicit bias. Those weren't the things. People felt like their emotions, they feel really strongly about seeing these kind of images. And in fact, these images sort of change how they feel about their own group identity. So when we ask participants to think about their racial identity, um, and we had majority white participants, they felt less good about their racial group after viewing these images, right? Which I think is hopeful. 
Yeah. So one of the last images of the day that I don't know if you were watching it was when the judge revoked Chauvin's bail mm-hmm. and ordered him taken in, into custody. And if you if you were watching TV, there was this moment where all of a sudden he was put in handcuffs and walked out a door. And it was a, a really powerful image. It was maybe even cathartic. And I don't know, but a lot, you know, a lot of people have been asking the question, was this trial cathartic or was it just, you know, one data point in a long string of data points that we have to deal with? Yeah, I think I would, uh, my own personal feeling is, is, you know, what I said before it, there is some relief in your, or at least I'm thankful that the worst is not going to happen. But it does feel like one data point. Well, when you say when you say that, it suggests that this is not going to be any sort of turning point that's not going to fundamentally change attitudes by either the police or the public. You know, I think some of us would like to think differently. Right. Um, is your judgment on this based on you know your research, or is it just your sort of gut? I think it's both. I mean, I think, you know, we know what, that... What about your research suggests that this will not sort of fundamentally change attitudes? One thing from our research is we find that people who don't experience their... have problems regulating their emotions, but usually the ones who um, aren't willing to feel them or express them, they report less anger. They report more positive emotions relative to other people. They endorse more positive attitudes about police. And so, you know, of course, it's never as simple as we'd like it to be. But I think the research suggests, yes, if you if people get angry and if they pay attention, if they're watching and they're really in it, you could see this change. But I don't know that as a nation, all of us are there. Right. I don't know that we have the greatest majority of people who are feeling um, righteous indignation about these kinds of things. And I got to say, I, I was struck because um, uh, I do something that, you know, a lot of others perhaps don't do who listen to this podcast. I will inevitably watch Fox at night as well as other cable shows to see what everybody's saying. And, you know, the, the what I heard on Fox News was just as uh, strong condemnation of uh, Derek Chauvin's conduct as you could hear on any other network. Uh, there was a sort of universal repulsion at the video. And if you remember, you know, everybody from, you know, Bill Barr, the, the Trump's attorney general, to, uh, you know, Trey Gowdy, to Republicans in Congress, all condemned what was on that video. And, you know, we can be cynical about that, but, or we can say, look, when shown clear evidence of police mistreatment of African Americans, we are all as a nation appalled by that. Yeah, but I think that's the tricky point, right? Are we as upset and are we condemning the police as much for Dante Wright? I mean, you know, and any count. Do we have other... the video? Do we have a comparable video? I mean, well, I, I mean you know, the video makes all the difference, it, right? I mean, I, but I think that's the point, right? Like, we have to be convinced that they are worthy of having gotten the justice that they deserve. And, I, you know, I have another piece where I talk about I had gotten to this place that felt more peaceful. Um, 
but like we just need to honor people's humanity. And I, I hear other people saying that more, but you know, so it's sort of this issue of, well, if I can see it, right? If it's really egregious to me, then that then we they deserve the right level of justice. And I think that's the hard part. I think that's the part that I don't feel is hopeful that we can overcome. Well, you know, I I read your 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 piece that you just referred to and mm-hmm. about black people whose humanity has been not just not honored, but denied uh, for such a long time. When you look at this moment and the verdict in this case um, and the way people have talked about uh, George Floyd uh, over the past year, do you think that um, that that suggests people seeing humanity in George Floyd or is it something else going on? In other words, is, is this a uh, is this any measure of progress in terms of that issue of people actually being able to see humanity in black people? You know, in the closing arguments, I think each side addressed humanity, but maybe in different ways. Right. So you hear a lot about George Floyd asking for his mother. And I think in that piece, everyone can identify with that piece of humanity, wanting the, you know, one of the people who is closest to you. And so I think that that sheds a light on his humanity. On the other hand, right, the defense wanted to talk about drug use and wanted to talk about potential, you know, wrongdoings, which of course minimizes the worth of that person, right? Because we do see things in such binaries. Oh, well, he was a criminal. So does he, you know, deserve the same level of justice, humanity, respect? So I think it depends on what what side you were on. Um, I mean, and it's just awful. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking, you asked me some of these questions before, and, you know, I'm thinking about, I tried my best not to watch the tape when it first came out. Like, you couldn't help but see snippets, but I refused, again, to kind of be this bystander to that kind of horror. Like, I just, I don't need, I just don't want to see that. Like, it doesn't make me feel good, and it also feels invasive and some other words that I don't, I can't communicate um, but in seeing enough of it, it's like, that's a whole person. That is a person. And it's just so hard to to think about how anyone can just disregard a person's life. Like I heard the defenses, you know, a reasonable police officer would do these things. It, it's still a whole person and you have your knee on his neck for such a long time. Like, it's just hard. It's hard. I don't know. I don't know what other people, like whether the public has a different view of George Floyd or his humanity based on that, but he certainly was not being treated in a humane way. So I don't know how you really see that. I'd be curious what, how you all kind of experience that. Well, what I'm thinking is that, um, I mean, one of the things that was effective about the state's case uh, was they simplified things. You know, it was reductive in a way. I mean, they, you know, the line was, you can believe your eyes. What happened on this video happened. You can see it. Right. (laughs) And it is, at the end of the day, uh, about someone whose humanity is being denied by a police officer. Right. It's it's complicated because I understand uh, what you're saying. It's uh, it does feel awful to have to see this video. But on the other hand, it's what delivered accountability in this case. Right. So I want to like uh, maybe move forward a little bit. You've been doing some work with police departments trying to change their training about how to interact with community, you know, with African-American communities. Tell us a little bit about it. Does that give you any hope for the future? 
it it does <laughs> it does <laughs> um i mean you know it's 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 hard to talk about it on today when there's so many other kind of feelings and thoughts but yes yeah, so um 3 or 4 years ago it was probably around the time that Philando Castile um had been murdered and i was just like what can i do <laughs> Right. I was talking to a documentary filmmaker, 371 Productions, Brad Lichtenstein, and just like, what? How can I use my skills and talents? Right. I'm an affective neuroscientist. I have not previously studied issues of race too directly, but I feel like I need to do something. And so he and I, you know, began talking and brainstorming, and he had already been talking to the Chicago Police Department. And so after about two years, of working with brass, getting them on board, getting community groups um, who were in Chicago on board, having a group of police officers. We developed in collaboration with them, right? And so this was very much sort of community engaged work, making sure that we were giving the community what they needed, not what we thought they needed. Right. And so we developed this virtual reality scenario. So it was a 360 degree live action scenario. And it was a police member, community member interaction. And when you enter into the VR scenario, you're entered right in the midst, right? It's already taking place. Everyone is already there. And it's important probably for me to say this now, all of the main characters in the scenario are Black. And we used a couple of, and I'll just talk about the one that worked. We use what they call counter-stereotypical information. Basically, this is something that butts against what you typically think about someone, right? And it kind of, it tries to kind of unearth these biases that you may not be aware of. And so we used that um, as a technique to try to build, and we use the word empathy, and that's what we measured, I think mostly because it's something that people understand, like they understand what empathy is. I was thinking about it more in terms of, do you feel connection, closeness, humanity, right? Like, can you understand this person? Can you take their perspective? And so when we presented this kind of in-depth conversation where the community member got to talk about his upbringing and it was very, you know, it was that his grandfather had been college educated. He had been college educated. He had lost his white collar job and was just struggling in this moment. Um, You saw both police officers and community members, because we tested both, but we saw police officers really show a significant increase in empathy for the community member in that moment, but not at other moments in the scenario. And so it, and in addition to that, we found that the more empathy they reported for the community member at that time, the more likely they reported planning to engage in peace circles and restorative justice circles, right? And so engaging with the community more. And so we take that on a hopeful note to say, yes, if you can see the humanity, if you can connect with community members, you're more likely to engage with them in positive ways in the future, right? That it extends to the whole group and not just that one community member. Well, fascinating. I I had said before you came on that um, we all have reason to be thankful for the development of cell phone video for this verdict, getting justice in this case. And it sounds like uh, taking things further, virtual reality may be the path uh, for uh, for all of us to achieve even greater justice in the future. So, uh, Dr. Gordon, I want to thank you for uh, joining us and um, uh, appreciate your 
your your insights into this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you okay. so much. Yeah, it's sure a really, really interesting conversation. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you.